Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. We're going to be covering a huge variety of stuff in this series. So what we did is those cards that are on your seat, we, we've been doing this for four weeks and, and we threw those out there uh, as, as a way, those cards are a way for us to kind of help take a census of our community and work out what's going on. But also there was a chance on the back of those cards to ask questions. And so this series, the, the following 10 weeks are, are based on the questions that we received back. And so we've compiled those into um, a list and we kind of found the questions that were a bit similar and threw them together. Um, and so we're going to be looking at uh, all sorts of different things from the nature of the Bible tonight uh, to social media to hell to abortion and everything in between. So it's a really interesting series. And um, I would actually ask you, and we're going to do this right now, uh, as we launch and embark on this series, I want to ask you to pray. Uh, pray that God would use this series not to draw attention to us, but to draw people to himself. Uh, that the preachers would speak biblically and in a way that builds people up uh, and that through this series as we explore these topics that, that people, people have genuine questions they're asking that uh, more of God's truth and nature and character would be revealed. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are uh, so good to us. We pray that over these next 10 weeks as we seek to address the questions that people are asking for a friend, um, that you would in fact actually not help us, help us to not uh, be ashamed of our questions. Um, we don't need to ask for a friend. We can be honest and, and where we're at and ask for, for us and where we're at. But we ask that as we look at these topics that you would um, help those speaking to speak with your spirit and your truth, um, that you would open our hearts to your gospel, that you would uh, help us as a church to um, go deeper with our faith, that these uh, are questions that may be uh, barriers to, to deeper faith or faith at all, or these may be questions that just kind of niggle on us, Lord, that um, you would help us to uh, unpack that. And Lord, these are all just going to be scratching the surface, and these uh, answers are all just going to be the very start, Lord, but may we never um, stop searching for truth, and may we always find our truth in you. Amen. And so, this week, the question for this week, we gathered a heap of the questions and these kind of had this general theme is, is this. Why do Christians still follow such an ancient text? Why do Christians still follow such an ancient text, the Bible? You'll see in, your, uh, in front of you, in your little pews, uh, that there are copies of the Bible. And this is not by accident. This is a Christian staple. We have Bibles. And why... Are they important? Why do Christians still uh, hold to, up the Bible? Why do they look to the Bible? Why do Christians, uh, why are they crazy about the Bible? Why do Christians, in fact, read the Bible and follow what the Bible says over and above what other people in the culture say that you should do? Why do they hold the Bible in such high esteem? <clears throat> now, in preparing for this sermon, uh, the hardest part was actually knowing what to leave out, um, knowing where not to go. Uh, and so I've kind of cut here and cut there and kind of got this thing down to uh, something that would be reasonable enough to still have dinner uh, tonight. <laughs> so uh, I'm not asking you to bear with me um, because I don't think, you know, I, I don't want us to kind of just put up with this, but I'm asking you to come with me um, as we open this up and explore some of these things. Uh, please, I will try not to jump around too much. 
Um, I've tried to kind of put a bit of flow and order in this, but let's kind of, um, let's go there together. Let's be gracious to each other, please. And we'll go there together. Why would Christians base their lives on and pin their hope on a God that they learn about and learn from in a book that was kind of written and compiled 2,000 years-ish ago. And I don't want to kind of just like, I could give a one-sentence answer and we could go home and it's this, but we'll unpack it a bit. And it's basically this. It's because we believe that we have a God who actually speaks. We believe we have a God who speaks to us, who is not silent. God has not actually left us wondering about who he is and about life, but he speaks to his people in many ways. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, God's invisible nature, has, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So people are without excuse for not knowing God. We believe that God speaks to us in such a way that even looking at nature, the world that he's created, his divine attributes, his, his bigness, his godness is clearly visible. A Hebrews 1 would say he revealed himself in many ways, in many different times and places. And in creation, he testifies of his power and his divinity. In the Old Testament, he spoke to his people through prophets. And now, through Jesus, he's spoken decisively. Hebrews 1, 1 to 2 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in these last days he's spoken to us through his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he made the world. And so we believe that the good news of the Son, Jesus, and his redemptive work is contained within the Bible, or what we call Scripture. It's the written record of God's self-revelation to us. All of the Bible, we believe, points to Jesus. And it's only when it's interpreted through that lens that it actually all makes sense. Jesus uh, tells people, he says this in John 5, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And so Jesus in that context is talking about the entire Old Testament. He's talking to the Jewish religious leaders and saying, you search those because you think you're going to find life. They're testifying about me. And so we believe that all of Scripture points to Jesus. And so finally, what is Scripture? Why is the Bible special? What sets it apart from other religious writings? To answer these questions they all kind of revolve around what we call the process of inspiration. So when we look at all the kind of religious writings that are there, that exist in the world, uh, why are we saying that the ones that we believe, the 66 books of the Bible, why are these ones the Bible? And it comes down to inspiration. Now, I'm going to use that word inspiration, and that will bring up like different meanings for different people, and so we're going to kind of go into it. However, when we're using inspiration in, in regards to Scripture, in regards to the Bible, what we mean is this. It's, it's derived from the Greek word God-breathed. 
And so it technically indicates the process by which God superintended the prophets and the apostles who wrote particular books of the Bible. What we mean by that, we're talking about uh, inspired or inspiration of Scripture. We're talking about the fact that God, before they were written, intended what the prophets and apostles were going to write. And that doesn't mean that the people who wrote the 66 different books of the Bible were merely kind of passive puppets. Like, you know, I have this idea of um, uh, one of the ideas that some of the, uh, the people throughout history have had is that there was literally kind of angels like holding their hands over the top of them and making them write what they were going to write. They weren't just puppets as though they were like sleep writing, but rather God sovereignly dictated his message through their, through their individual personalities, their intellects, their experiences and the styles of those who choose, he chose to write his message. Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 20-21 says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. And so Christians believe that the prophecy of Scripture was not their own doing, but men inspired or, or not, uh, motivated by or moved by the Holy Spirit speaking from God. And because Scripture is inspired by God, we know that as originally written, in the original language, it must be inerrant and authoritative for all people for all times. And we'll look at that in just a sec, and we'll also look at the doctrine of sufficiency in just a sec, and then lastly, we'll kind of unpack uh, some of the issues involved with interpretation uh, and especially kind of as modernity has progressed, like how this has changed and our ideas of what the Bible is have changed. So we believe that the Bible is inerrant, without error, and always true in everything that it speaks about. Jesus says, uh, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. John 17, 17. And that doesn't mean that scripture, we believe, gives us an exhaustive knowledge of everything in particular. But that the knowledge that it does give us is objectively accurate. So we don't believe that scripture is going to tell you uh, how in detail or in any detail at all, how to change a car tyre. It doesn't tell you that, but what it, the things that it does speak about, it's accurate. We believe that the Bible is authoritative or has authority. Uh, as the Second Peter verse said, that men wrote, moved by the Holy Spirit. If the Bible is God's words, then they matter and they should be taken seriously. And so Christians follow the Bible because they believe that it's the word of God. And if it's God's words, then he has final say, so it has authority. And Christians still follow the Bible because they believe the Bible is sufficient. What does that mean? Well, 2 Timothy 3 verses 14 to 17 says this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and from how childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, 
which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture is sufficient for salvation to teach us about who Jesus is and what he came to do and it's sufficient to train us in godliness, to equip us for every good work. In other words, Scripture is sufficient to lead us to Christ and to lead us to righteousness through Christ. And that leads us to to think to ourselves, well, church tradition is important and reason is important, but Scripture alone is sufficient for salvation and equipping us for every good work. That doesn't mean that we can't make use of uh, other books and resources and, and training ideas, but we need to value Scripture and what it has to say more highly than we value those other things. And so a challenge for the Christians here uh, in terms of what we're digesting and what we're taking in is, are we going to the Word more than or with priority over going to other Christian books and manuals and, and traditions. So Christians follow the Bible. Christians follow a book compiled and written over 2,000 years ago because they believe it is the Word of God. They believe it has authority. They believe it's inerrant. And they believe that it's sufficient for salvation and for training in righteousness. That's why. But that's not to say that those beliefs go unchallenged. There is, uh, I would say, a challenge in culture to those ideas. They're not accepted. If you went to someone and said, well, I believe the Bible because it's the authoritative, sufficient word of God, they'd be like, well, I don't believe that. <laughs> you know, okay. So the truth is no longer about the Bible, is no longer accepted in culture at large and, and growingly, sadly, in much of the Australian church as well. The truths about what Scripture is are watered down or ignored or denied completely. And what I want to say is this, in terms of like, well, one of the questions asked was, well, how can I, how can I show my friend that the Bible is truly God's Word? Uh, how can I prove to my friend that the Bible is the Word of God? And the truth is this, you can't. You can never argue someone into believing that the Bible is the Word of God. Just like you can never argue someone into a loving relationship with Jesus. You can't force someone to believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Because if you don't believe in God, why would you believe that he had a Word? You can't do it. Don't try and do it. You're just going to frustrate yourself and make them angry. You cannot try and prove the Bible is the Word of God to someone who doesn't believe. But what you can do is show them that there are good reasons to trust the Bible. And some of the, uh, the following questions that we were going to address that we received relate to this, and in answering them, they will help to flesh this out for us. Some of why can we trust the Bible? what the Bible is and how to actually use it. 
So the best way to convince someone of the truth of Scripture is this, is not to tell them, but for them to experience its power. You can try and tell someone about... Um, probably not going to get too many... I don't think there's too many like V8 supercar fans in the room. Is there any? One? Uh, you can put your hand down. I won't tell. Uh, <laughs> we'll pray for you. Um. <laughs> but you can... You can um, nameless person. Um, you can try and tell other people about like how awesome it is to stand at the edge of the track and, and feel the power of the car go past and feel the wave of the noise hit you. You can try and tell someone about that and they might kind of look at you a bit strange. But if you really want them to understand that, you take them with you to the race and you stand them there next to the track and you wait for that car to go past and they feel the power of that car going past. It's the same, but also much more um, with knowing God and, and experiencing Scripture. The, the best way to convince someone of the truth of Scripture is for them to experience its power. There is power in the Word of God. Um, as we heard, the Holy Spirit literally breathed into Scripture as it was written. And I believe that the Holy Spirit breathes out as we read, speaks to us through the Bible. So my encouragement to you would be, if you have a friend that you're trying to convince them that Scripture is the Word of God, don't tell them about it. Convince them to read it with you to convince them to experience it. In fact, um, the most uh, recent person that um, I had the pleasure of being a part of um, their coming to faith was a guy that um, he literally knocked on my mother-in-law's door and said, can you please tell me about Jesus? Because he'd heard that she was a Christian and he wanted to know about Jesus. And then I turned up a little bit later, uh, we got connected, and he came around for about a year, and all we did was read through the Bible together. Like he turned up at our house for an hour once a week, we opened the Bible, he read chapter to me, I read a chapter to him, and then about Easter, we're reading through the Passion narrative, and he just turns to me and says, this is real. I'm like, yes it is. It's in experiencing it that we know its power, and then it becomes real to us, because the Holy Spirit is there, and he's active, and it's literally saturated in God. You can't convince them. Take them to it and let them experience it. But some of the questions we received were, were like this. Uh, explain the validity of the biblical canon, given that it was dictated by people. Why were some books excluded? And secondly, where does the Bible come from? So there's people kind of take together, and, and it's the Bible is, is, in fact, not one book, but 66 different books. Uh, and there were, in fact, other books floating around at the time. So why the ones that we've got and why not the other ones? That's the question. And in answering this, it will help to actually show us that the 66 are there for a reason and it's very valid. So you may or may not know that the, the Christian faith uh, actually started or arose as a sect of Judaism uh, and came out of Judaism uh, and the Jewish canon, canon was actually closed in about 400 BC. And so our Old Testament is exactly the same as the Jewish scriptures. 
And so the Christian Old Testament was actually settled in about 400 BC. Uh, it's the same as what the, is, uh, the Jewish scriptures would be. Uh, and so in about 400 BC, after the prophet Malachi prophesied, if you look through your Bibles, that's probably the order they've put it in. Malachi is probably going to be the last one there. Uh, in terms of chronolo- chronology, timeline, Malachi was the last prophet there. Then silence. And so they closed the canon. God had finished speaking to them. And so in the New Testament, we see John the Baptist come on the scene, John the Baptizer. And the reason why John the Baptizer was such a big deal is there'd been no prophets for 400 years. The Jewish canon was closed because there was no more prophets speaking. And so John the Baptizer is such a huge deal because all of a sudden there's a prophet again. God is speaking again. And so from then on, it's, we're talking about New Testament stuff. And when it comes to the New Testament, um, it wasn't, we couldn't just kind of uh, piggyback off the Jews and say, hey, what did you guys think? Um, we had uh, the New Testament books that were being written that were uh, circling around. Uh, and so the question for the early church in the councils that they had as they uh, affirmed what books were going to be part of the New Testament were these. Is it apostolic? So is it either written by or connected to an apostle? So you have um, in the Gospels, you have uh, Matthew, written by Matthew. You have John, written by John. But then you have Mark and Luke, not written by apostles. But you have Luke who was traveling around with the apostles and John Mark who was traveling around with the apostles. And so they look to which books have apostolic influence. And then they look to, is it consistent with the rest of Scripture? Is it accepted by the church? And is it being used by the church as Scripture? And so when they had these councils uh, in the very early days of the church to affirm what is in the canon of Scripture, it wasn't so much them deciding what would be Scripture and what would not be Scripture, it was them affirming what the church already was treating as Scripture. It's a bit like um, if someone came to you with two bags of money and gave you two bags of money and said to you, okay, this bag is real Australian currency issued by the Australian government and this bag is counterfeit money uh, that someone else has made um, and they kind of just threw the bags together and jumbled it up and then gave it to you uh, and you took each note and looked at it and examined it and saw what was written on that note And then you're like, well, okay, I've got to sort this out. So that is real money, that's counterfeit money. Real money, counterfeit money. And in the same way, when they were looking at the the books available to be put in the New Testament canon, it wasn't so much they were deciding, okay, let's roll the dice, these ones are going to be the Bible. It was, we look at the books, we look for the marks in them, we see that these are the real words, scriptures of God, through these marks, and that these ones are not so much. And so we're going to talk a little bit about the ones that missed out. In fact, uh, so much so uh, was the New Testament writings by the apostles recognised to be scripture by the early church that even within New Testament writings we have recognition that other New Testament writings were scripture. So Peter, one of the leaders in the early church, writes, writes in 2 Peter 3, verses 15 to 16, he writes this, Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. He does this in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. 
Who knows that about Paul, yeah. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. And so Peter, uh, one of the apostles who'd been with Jesus, is literally writing here, what Paul has written is scripture. And so even contained within the, the New Testament canon scripture of Peter, he's saying what Paul wrote is scripture. But what are some of the ones that didn't make it? Uh, we're going to quickly talk about pseudepigrapha. Now, uh, if you want to um, you know, sound like a jerk, you can go around telling people, hey, I know what pseudepigrapha means. But basically, pseudepigrapha, pseudepigrapha, it's basically uh, writings that claim to be written by someone that actually aren't written by that person. And so they're books that imitate scripture, but were written under false names. And so, for example, we have books called The Gospel of Thomas, The Gospel of Mary. Uh, I know that Thomas just looked up and said, I get a gospel? No, sorry, Thomas, you don't. Because they're not consistent with the rest of the Bible. Uh, in fact, interestingly, often these, uh, these pseudo-pigrapha, these other books that are not, the, not canon, um, they have such bad theology in them, they often are really disrespectful of women, like the Gospel of Mary that basically says, Mary, I'm going to... In this, this is not what I'm about to say, Jesus didn't actually say this, but in the Gospel of Mary, it's recorded that Jesus says to Mary, Mary, it sucks that you're a woman, I'm going to make you a man so that you can be my apostle. And so we read that and we think, that's not scripture. That's not consistent with who Jesus is. That's not consistent with his character. It's counterfeit. And also often they're full of what would be called Gnostic theology, which is basically that the body is evil and the soul is good and it's Greek thinking and it's kind of hepted, crept in. And the other thing is that uh, these pseudepigraphal books, uh, the books that we have as, as canon in the scripture were written within close lifetime of the apostles, uh, usually within their lifetime or just afterwards, uh, and the pseudepigrapha are often written 200, 300, 400 AD. And then also we have apocryphal books. Uh, if you are here and you uh, went to Catholic school or have a Catholic background, this may be something that you know and are familiar with. Uh, and I'm going to um, put it out there that I don't think that they're scripture, but you are still welcome here. You're allowed to disagree. Um, and the apocrypha is... Uh, I said in, uh, just before that the last prophet, Malachi, finished speaking, uh, and then we didn't hear again from a prophet until John the Baptist... Well, people actually still knew how to write in that period, and people still recorded history in that period. And so we have uh, these other books um, that the Jewish community actually recorded and wrote that cover that time, but they're not considered scripture. So they were composed by, uh, they were composed largely in the last two centuries before Christ actually was born, uh, and in the first century afterwards as well. There were some written then as well. And so there are books like. Uh, the Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, The Wisdom of Jesus, uh, The Letter of Jeremiah, Susanna, Bell and the Dragon, uh, the first and second book of the Maccabees. And we do not consider these to be scripture, but we do, still do consider these to be useful. I would, I would actually uh, encourage uh, Christians to read the Bible, uh, firstly and primarily, but these are what uh, we can look to as information for what was going on 
historically for the Jewish people at that time? What was their thoughts? What were they thinking? Uh, kind of fills in some interesting uh, details about what happened between um, the return to Jerusalem and the, the conquering of Israel by Rome. Uh, and so we have the Maccabean revolts and we learn about uh, these different kings that kind of rose up and were kind of uh, pre, like they put themselves out as saviors, as messiahs, and they were false messiahs and they ended up uh, not being Jesus. And so we learn about all these kind of things. Uh, and for pretty much um, all of church history, the whole entire church agreed that these were not scripture. It wasn't actually until 1546, uh, as part of the Counter-Reformation, that the Roman Catholic Church uh, decided to consider some of these books inspired and include them in the canon. Uh, And I mean no disrespect to our Catholic uh, Catholic brothers and sisters, but this was largely in response to Martin Luther because they needed ammunition to actually refute him. And in a lot of these books, uh, these uninspired uh, Jewish writings, a lot of these books actually say things about faith being by works and things like that. And so like, well, we need that, so let's call it scripture now, and then we can refute Martin Luther. Basically, that is a really simplified version, but that's it. Um, and so the number of books in the Hebrew canonical Old Testament is 24, um, but as is 39, and so you might think to yourself, hang on, that doesn't add up. Uh, it's just the fact that some of the ones that, like, we've got First and Second Samuel, they've just got Samuel, right? So it's the same thing, but they're just organized it different. Um, and the uh, apocryphal books were only included in the Old Testament uh, like actual translation as late as the Septuagint. So um, basically what happened is uh, Alexander the Great um, conquered the known world. That's why he was the great and not just the so-so. He conquered the known world. And um, the, basically because of that, the Greek influence in, in the known world uh, was there and all the good little uh, Jewish boys and girls started learning Greek and not Hebrew. And so they were speaking Greek and all of a sudden, well, we don't actually, can't no longer read our uh, Hebrew Old Testament in Hebrew because we don't speak Hebrew anymore. We speak Greek and we can't even read Hebrew. And so they're like, well, you know what? We better translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. And when they did that, they also thought, well, while we're at it, we might as well translate this other oral, this other history that we've been writing as well. And it all kind of got translated at the same time. Uh, and then because of that, uh, it was included in the Septuagint, which was basically a stack of Hebrew writings translated into Greek and put together in one book for easy access, or scrolls for easy access. Um, and then because of it's in the Septuagint, some people will say, well, it's part of the scripture, but no, actually it was just, we're translating all this stuff for these good Hebrew boys and girls who can't speak Hebrew anymore, and so it's there. And so when you hear people refer to the Septuagint and say, well, the Apocrypha is in it, it's basically because, well, we're doing the rest of it anyway, so let's just keep going. <laughs> um, and so uh, over the kind of the 600 years between 300 AD and 900 AD, uh, some of the uh, apocryphal books in the Septuagint crept, continued to creep into translations. And so this is probably a bizarre history lesson. You're probably, why does it keep going? But anyway, um, when the uh, the... Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible was done by the Roman Catholic Church. Um, They translated from the Septuagint and so therefore included all of this extra Hebrew stuff that had been translated. Uh, Interestingly, the uh, guy who... Well, you probably like... This is an interesting... I find it interesting. Interestingly, the the guy who actually translated the Septuagint, which was the the authorised Roman Catholic version of the Bible, um, was translated from the Septuagint, the guy who translated it from that actually wrote 
Uh, at the very start of his translation, he actually wrote in the editing notes, this is not scripture. Um, and then that is the Bible that they use. So we can, you know, uh, laugh about that, have a cup of tea about that, and then read the Bible together anyway. Um, but no New Testament book uh, actually, of the accepted New Testament books, actually references any of the apocryphal works uh, of the Jewish history that was written down. Um, and also the, re- the other reason that we don't uh, accept the Apocrypha as scripture is because Jesus didn't. Um, Jesus says in Luke 24, 44, he, he, says, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So this saying, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, was a Jewish way of referring to the Old Testament. And so the law of Moses is the first five books. It's the, um, first five, it's the Pentateuch. Uh, the prophets are the writings of the prophets. And the Psalms means the Psalms, uh, Proverbs, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes. And so this was a, a Jewish offhand way of saying the Old Testament. And so Jesus refers to the scriptures as being just that and not the Apocrypha and not anything else. So Jesus defines the canon as the law of Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets. That is why we have those particular 66 books. Um, I hope any of that made sense. I just realized that I just like pretty much said about 20 things that were not in front of me on my page and just kept going. So I have no idea. I probably have to listen back to that and be like, what did I say? But feel free. Let's chat afterwards, hey? Um, Another question that we received was, how do we communicate that the Bible is written by God? And again, I just want to say, you cannot make someone believe that the Bible is written by God any more than you can make them believe in God. There are some very good reasons to trust Scripture and to trust Scripture as we've received it, but only faith gifted by God's grace can bring about belief. And another really good question we have as part of this and offering a barrier to belief is what does the Old Testament actually mean for Christians? What does it mean that Jesus fulfilled the law? What about all those Old Testament laws? Are we allowed to eat shellfish? And what about mixed threads? Do I have to throw out my sweet jacket? All of the scriptures bear witness about Christ. So we believe that Moses wrote about Jesus. Again, Jesus said that you search the scriptures because you think in them you'll find life, but it's they that testify about me. So all the scriptures are about Jesus, and even when there is in fact no explicit prediction or mention about Jesus, there is a fullness of implication in the scriptures that point to Jesus. The meaning of all the scriptures is unlocked by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what he means when he says, I fulfilled the law. So beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Luke 24, 27. All of the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus, even the parts that weren't explicitly prophetic, clearly like Isaiah 53, 55. Jesus accomplishes all that the law requires. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17 to 18, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. 
All of the Old Testament points to Jesus because all of the promises of God in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus. The law was kept perfectly by Christ. And all the penalties against God's sinful people were poured out on Christ. Therefore, the law is no longer the path to righteousness, but Christ is. The ultimate goal of the law was that we would look to Christ and not to law-keeping for our righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law to righteousness for everyone who believes, Romans 10, 4. And so we have all these, uh, these things that the Old Testament law established, all these ceremonial things, all these uh, practical religious things that we see are actually fulfilled in Christ. The reason that we don't kind of come here on Sundays and sacrifice a bull is blood sacrifices ceased because Christ fulfilled all that they were pointing towards. He was the final unrepeatable sacrifice for sin. Hebrews 9.12, he, he entered into the holy places once for all, not by means of blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing for us an eternal redemption. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law because the priesthood that stood between the worshippers and between God has ceased in Jesus. Hebrews 7.23 and 24 says, the former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And the physical temple has ceased to be the geographic centre of worship because now Christ himself is the centre of worship. He is our place, he is our tent, he is our tabernacle where we meet God. And therefore Christianity has no centre. We don't have a Mecca We don't have a Jerusalem. We have a Jesus. John 4, 21, 23, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And in John 9, Jesus said to the Jewish religious leaders, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Little did they know he was talking about himself. Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. And the food laws that set Israel apart, those shellfish lovers, this is your good news. They have been fulfilled and ended in Christ. We don't follow ceremonial food laws for Israel anymore because Jesus has fulfilled the law, and it's ended in Christ. Jesus said to them in Mark 7, verses 18 to 19, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? And thus he declared all foods clean. And finally, the establishment of civil law on the basis of an ethnically rooted people. So all the laws that were for the nation of Israel and for how they should operate, and for why we should stone particular people at particular times. All the establishment of those civil laws of an ethnically rooted people who are directly ruled by God have ceased because the people of God are no longer a unified political body or a unified ethnic group or even a nation state. 
But the people of God are now exiles and sojourners among all ethnic groups, among all states, among all political persuasions. And therefore God's will for states, for the government, is not to be taken from the Old Testament theocracy, but should now be re-established from place to place and from time to time by what corresponds to God's rule over all people at all times. The state, therefore, is grounded in God's sovereignty and not in his immediate theocratic rule. Romans 13.1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God and those that have exist that have been instituted by him. And in John 18, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. And so we don't follow the civic laws of Israel because in Jesus we are a new nation, a new people. And Jesus has fulfilled the ceremonial law and the civil law by establishing a new people and a new kingdom and by breaking the old ceremonies for his body being the temple. Does it make any sense? All right. I know I'm jumping around a little bit. Why do we need the Bible? Psalm 19, verses 7 to 10 says this. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the rules of the Lord are true and altogether righteous. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than also honey and drippings of the honeycomb. We need the Bible because if it really is the word of God, we want him to speak to us. If the the books of the Old Testament as they point to Jesus and the books in the New Testament as they expound for us who he is and what that means for us even more, if they're true, if they're real, We'd want to know that. We'd want to experience that. We want them to impact us. And so how should we read the Bible, finally? Well, there's some common ways that people read the Bible. Um, and I'm not saying that like God isn't beyond speaking to people however he wants to. Like one time he spoke out of a donkey, so he's really not going to kind of limit God uh, in that way. And I think it's wise to do that because he might make a donkey out of me. Um, but there's some common ways to, to read the Bible that, that are not necessarily as helpful. You may have heard as people refer to their Bible as their guide for life or their rule book um, or moral stories. Or perhaps even I know that I have been guilty of doing this myself, feeling like I want to hear from God, so I just randomly open the Bible and put my finger down and treat it like a Yahweh, Yahweh? Uh, Yahweh's those little chocolate. Ouija, thank you. <laughs> Someone get me some chocolate. Imagine if Yahweh, anyway. 
Now my, my, my mind is just going into chocolate. Um, but we treat it like voodoo, right? We just kind of open it up and randomly pick a passage, and that's God, God's random word for me today. Um, I would suggest to you that those are not necessarily helpful ways to read the Bible, for all it's worth. The Bible is more than just kind of like a book of rules, and it's more than just a story of significant heroes, and it's more than just inspiration about how you can be like David um, and defeat your personal Goliaths. Um, The Bible is God's word to us about who Jesus is, and it's strong and it's true. And the Bible tells us in fact, a whole story. The reason that we call one, 66 books one book is because we don't believe, we believe these 66 belong together and they paint a big picture and a big story about our big God and it's not just one little thing. So the best way to read the Bible is to read the whole Bible together in context and that's a much harder way to do it. The Bible must be read as a whole. I mean, for example, one of my personal pet peeves is uh, Jeremiah 29.11 which is, in fact, an amazing verse and a really great verse. But um, those of you who don't know it, um, if you go into kind of any kind of Christian-type store, you'll probably find this plastered on the side of a mug uh, or with a poster, uh, perhaps with a, a gaudy-looking, um, I don't know, sometimes eagles or whatever on it. Um, it's this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Um, and perhaps this is like the kind of verse that someone writes on your little graduation card or whatever, and you're like, well, that's really inspirational and great. And it is a, right, it is a great verse, and it reminds us that God's in control, but he loves and cares for us and wants the best for us. But um, I don't think there's too many of us who that actually applies to in its original context without understanding it. I mean, it's really well-meaning that a person sends you that verse and it kind of makes you feel good, but there's not too many of us that are in... Um, Babylonian exile and experiencing what that verse actually talks about. Um, And so someone might send you that verse and think, you know what, that's really encouraging. Now I kind of just have to snap out of it and just trust God and and believe all that that verse has to say. But what we need to know is that the plans that the Lord has for us in the context of this verse isn't that we're going to have an amazing, awesome, trouble-free life. The plans to prosper and not to harm us is that he's going to send us Jesus. Because if you read this verse and think, you know what, God's promised that his plans to prosper me and not to harm me, and then you get cancer or you get sick, um, you might actually all of a sudden not believe in God anymore. Because if you think that's what God's saying and then it doesn't happen, you'll think that God's a liar. But that's in fact not what God's saying. And so it's important that we read the Bible in the context of what it's written and understand it for what it's written, because otherwise it won't make any sense for when life goes bad. God didn't promise you health, wealth, and prosperity. God promised you Jesus. God didn't promise uh, the people in Jeremiah 29, 11 that everything was going to be hunky-dory. He promised them Jesus. And so it's not enough to just kind of open Scripture and pull it out of context and say, "Woohoo! this is my life vest for this week. Be fruitful and multiply. Come here, babe. It's not... Without the rest of Scripture, <laughs> without the rest of Scripture, that could happen, right? You've got to read it in context. God is in control. He does have a plan. But you know what? You might not see the fruit of that plan until the other side of death and life. And so we read it, all the scripture for what it's worth in its context and we do the hard work of getting to know what that is because we want to know more of who God is and we want to know his heart for us and we want life to be lived rightly. And so we still pay attention to a book written and compiled over 2,000 years ago because we believe that God speaks. 
We believe that he has spoken through his prophets and we believe that he's spoken now, finally, through Jesus and the apostles. And we read it because, as 2 Timothy 3, 14-17 says this, Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. How from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. We read it because it's through that that we know God. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Christians still look to, follow, submit to a book compiled and written over 2,000 years ago because we believe it's God's word and we have brilliant reasons to do so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are so very good to us, um, that you are not a God who has stayed silent, but you have spoken. That even from the very dawn of creation, you were speaking in the garden. Even in their sin, you called out to Adam and Eve in their humanity. Even as your people wandered, you sent prophets and called them back. Even as your people groaned and waited for your return, you sent John to call out in the wilderness. Then even as our wandering hearts are searching that you send your word, you have given us your scripture that speaks to us. I pray that we would hear your voice. I pray that you would open our ears by your Holy Spirit, that we would not grow deaf to you. Lord, we cannot convince anyone that you have spoken. But Lord, help us to share your words and people will hear your voice. You said your sheep will hear your voice and they will know your name and they will follow you. May we not fail to speak your word because we're afraid that people won't respond, but may we be bold in sharing your word knowing that your sheep will recognize your voice for what it is and respond as you have called. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.